Hello everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Ahead of today's episode, I'm including a brief chat with my new partner and title sponsor, Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. I'm excited for us to work together and support each other, and I hope you are too. Hey, Adam. Hey, how's it going, brother? Good. So what I wanted to do with this little blurb ahead of the episode was to introduce you because we've decided to partner up. It was really important for me to join up with someone that aligns with what I believe in and provides a service that I would actually use and will use in the future. So the intent of the podcast of wanting to bring knowledge to people and your intent of wanting to bring knowledge and training and skills to people, the more we can make people aware of the experts that are out there and the more that we can expose them to those experts in training, really we're creating opportunities for people. We really are. Continuous learning is is what the fire service is all about and people should take advantage of that. It's just a perfect fit, really, in my world, and I believe in yours, too. So I just wanted people to get to know you a bit better. We'll do a full episode uh, in a month or so, but I just wanted to say hi and introduce you to everyone that listens. How's that sound? No, that sounds great, Scott. So why don't you start off by telling me what Firehouse Training is all about? Firehouse Training, we're all about career preparation, as well as offering professional firefighter training courses to not only aspiring firefighters, but also uh, career firefighters as well. Different areas that we would help an aspiring candidate out in would be application preparation, resume and cover letters. We do written aptitude test tutoring. We also do mock interview coaching. And along with those professional firefighter certifications as well, not only aspiring firefighters have taken our courses, but we've also had full-time firefighters from across Ontario come out to our facility in Fergus and take some as well. I usually get the students so involved and then the other instructor as well that it's more of a conversation. Everyone's learning as a group as opposed to me preaching. I call myself more of a facilitator than an instructor. I'm facilitating the learning, but I do it in a way that everyone gets involved and has fun. And before you know it, that was like, holy smokes, you know, learned a lot. And the students are pretty much talking almost 70% of the time just because of the questions and feedback that I'm getting from them as I teach. So. So how long have you been in the fire service? Nine years now, probably been in emergency response for almost 16 years, uh, whether it's in the industrial fire sector or in the, the hazardous material private industry. What made you want to get into providing a teaching service so early on in your career? Well, the one thing that I love about the fire service is that the more that you learn, the more that you realize that you don't know. And gaining that aspect of continuous learning, it's just a passion of mine. It helps with keeping up the motivation and everything else that the fire service has to offer. Do you find because of how busy fire departments are, especially as departments get bigger, that they can't provide enough quality training to their people day to day? So it's almost incumbent on us to seek outside training ourselves? I definitely do see that as a challenge, whether it's a small department or a large fire department. Um, Having the ability to round up everybody on the crew, you know, take the equipment off the trucks or take a bunch of firefighters out of service for the day to go down to the academy to train can be quite tough at times. We do have to take the onus upon ourselves. Keep that once keen firefighter who was working their butts off to apply and try to get hired and keep that level of motivation throughout their entire career. How great has it been for you to be able to meet so many other people from other departments? The best feeling in the world, especially when you get a chance to go to different associations and different trade shows and even some of the training events that we host here at Firehouse Training. I'm meeting firefighters from all over the province. You realize when you get to know these other firefighters, how other fire departments do things, how their training is different, how their procedures and policies are different. And at the end of the day, it's going to make us better firefighters for knowing what everyone else is doing. So we can take that experience and grow with it. Where do you seek out your additional training? How are you pushing your limit? 
I guess the best way to say that I'm pushing my limit is by meeting individuals like yourself, Scott, forming those partnerships through building these relationships in the industry is where we learn the most. Other avenues where people can go out and learn more about the trade and just become better firefighters. The more that we learn about the fire service, the more that we learn about the trade itself, the more we're going to learn about ourselves and what we're really capable of. And I think the best way to approach firefighters in general is just to create opportunities. You make it all available and let each person make their own choice of what they need and come to the table. None of us really like to have it forced upon us. No, of course not. And the nice thing about the fire service, there's such a wide range of areas where we can continuously learn. Whether somebody's into hazmats or high-rise firefighting or technical rescue, there's so many different avenues that a firefighter can go out meet other people in the industry, something that keeps them engaged and something that they're passionate about. They'll be keen on bringing that back to their own crews and their own fire departments to spread the wealth of their learning. So do you offer a broad range of opportunities, say from the fundamentals of throwing ladders, forcing doors, pulling hose, all the way up to terrorism awareness? Absolutely. And I believe that's what makes us a little bit different. We know as firefighters, the landscape is changing. The industry is changing. We know that a lot of cities are growing vertically. So having that extra knowledge on not only fighting a high-rise fire, but understanding how a fire panel works, how to utilize a fire safety plan, understanding some of the procedures that the local security team has inside of these buildings so we can coordinate on these calls is very important. And now CBRNE and terrorism-related calls, whether it's domestic or international terrorism, these are the kind of things that may happen to either a small or large community. Give me the website and where else people can reach you on social media. So you can find Firehouse Training at www.firehousetraining.ca. You can find us on Instagram at Firehouse Training or Twitter at Firehouse Train 1. Or just do a good old Google search with the current pandemic. Firehouse Training is actually offering a 10% discount on all online training courses. Don't forget to use the Firehouse 10 discount upon checkout. There's also some free training there as well from the the current COVID-19 pandemic, as well as some free training on assessing goals for yourself and the fire service. Well, like I said to you numerous times, I'm super stoked for us to be working together. Good to talk to you. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. Welcome to episode 24 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. There are distinct differences between being helpless and being rendered helpless, being without hope and being in a situation where there is no hope. These distinctions are crucial in the minds of first responders to accurately frame events we are a part of, so we can be honest in our minds and with each other about the reality of what we've experienced together. We can add trauma to what the tragedy has already caused by creating timelines of history that should have, would have, or could have occurred, even when none of those options were possible. I should have been there. I would have helped. I could have been part of trying. We can look back, examine, and learn from what is behind us, even if in that moment we were rendered helpless to change it, so we can look forward with the hope that if something similar occurs that we can be a part of a different outcome. Success in the future does not prove failure in the past. No two situations are alike. There are an infinite number of variables at play each time, but we can honor the past and those that were lost, hurt, and affected 
by bringing that hindsight into the evolving present. My guest this episode and his department banded together and bonded together, deeper than before, through tragedy. They embraced a past they couldn't change, each other in the present, and those that they will be beside in the future. The truest sense of honoring those that have fallen. Here's my conversation with Jake Hoffman. Let's just get into it. Tell me about your family and your upbringing. I was originally born and raised right outside of Washington, D.C. My dad was from Washington, D.C. lived there his whole life until work took him to Buffalo for a couple of years where he ended up meeting my mom. She was actually cleaning his teeth. She's a dental hygienist. And in between cleaning, he asked her out on a date and the rest is history. I'm the oldest of three kids. My brother's also a Toledo fireman and my sister's the youngest. She's going to graduate school to get her master's in special education right now. We've always been a pretty tight-knit family. I grew up around the firehouse. My dad's a life member of Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad, and he was an active member there for about 20-plus years. And so uh, going to visit the squad when we were kids was like the greatest thing we could do. I mean, you were happier than going to an amusement park if we could go to the rescue squad. So he's been in construction safety for years. He was a volunteer firefighter down there. And so that's eventually how we made it to Toledo when my dad got recruited to come work for a company up here. My mom's family's from Buffalo, so we used to visit there quite often. She's the youngest of seven, so... My mom's side of the family is massive. At Christmas dinner, we had, I think, like 72 people there. It's it's wow. stupid huge. But it was great. I couldn't really imagine a better childhood growing up. I mean, my parents were always great letting us make mistakes when we could, but helping us along when we needed it and letting us just run off and explore and values that you take for granted, or it's easy to take for granted, I suppose, like honesty and responsibility. I was probably about four or five years old. My grandparents were in town from Buffalo, and we went to uh, Mount Vernon, uh, just outside Washington, D.C., which is George Washington's home. As we were getting ready to leave, we walked through the gift shop. So I walk out of the store and give a book to my grandma, and I said, hey, Gammer, can you read this to me? And she goes, well, where did you get this book? And I said, oh, I got it from inside. So even at four years old, after I had inadvertently stolen a book from a national park, my parents and grandparents made me go in and apologize and give it back to them myself. So my parents have always been really big on taking personal responsibility and making the right choices. So like I said, I don't think I could have even asked for a better upbringing or childhood. And like me, you grew up without cell phones and internet. Yeah, it was great. When we were kids, we had quarters taped up underneath our bicycle seats. So if we rode into town and went to the pool or went to the candy store or the library and you needed to call home for some reason, you could take one of those quarters and pop it on a payphone and call home or you call collect. And when they ask who's calling, you just say, Hey mom, pick me up at the library. <laughs> we didn't even have cable TV till I was probably 10 or 11. And even then for a couple of years, it was just in like my parents' room. And if we were watching TV, it was sports or I remember watching rescue 911 every week. I think it was Tuesdays or Thursday nights yeah. as a kid. There was no such thing as watching TV during summer vacation unless it was raining outside. And even then, you could only watch it for about an hour after lunch. And then you had to be playing, you had to be reading, you had to be out riding bikes around the neighborhood causing a ruckus, doing literally anything other than sitting inside and watching TV. My brother and I, we've always known that we wanted to be firemen. And so when we were kids, we loved watching emergency. Before you could just go on Amazon and buy them, my dad had a whole bunch of VHS tapes of emergency that he'd had for years. And so we pretty much watched those things till they broke, more or less. We would steal my sister's life-size Barbie, and we'd pry up a sewer grate and throw it down there and <laughs> pretend to be Johnny and Roy and go down and rescue it. Awesome. In hindsight, as an adult, you're like, what the hell were we thinking? But <laughs> yeah, right. uh, as kids, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. Were you athletic and hobby-focused as a kid, too? Yeah, a little bit of both. I kind of did everything. Like a lot of kids, I mean, I played 
most sports at one point or another, soccer, swimming, baseball, softball, basketball, football, just about every sport we tried. I've always loved to read. I wish now I had more time to read than I do. I also started in Boy Scouts at a young age, collected stamps for a hot second, uh, and then I was a fire explorer in high school as well. Um, then once I got into high school, I played football my freshman year and decided to join our swim team to stay in shape for the winter. I really hadn't swam competitively since I was about seven or eight years old, and that was just a little summer swim league. So I figured, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll swim and hopefully stay in shape for football and, and get better next year, get stronger next year. And, but even though I was a little bit rusty, by the end of my freshman season, I had dropped a whole bunch of time and, and gotten kind of decent. So the following summer, all my buddies who were swimmers were trying to convince me to play water polo. But I was, nope, I like football. So I was doing my two days for football. But I would still swim with the team in the mornings just for conditioning. And my buddy's like, all right, man, hey, we got a scrimmage against this local high school. Doesn't matter for anything. We already know you know how to swim. We'll give you a quick primer on the rules, and you'll be good. So they're like, all right, come out for the scrimmage. You can't touch the bottom. You can't touch a ball with two hands, and just figure the rest out. So they put me in the pool. I was in the pool maybe 45 seconds in the scrimmage and accidentally broke the kid's nose. Nice. <laughs> and uh, from about then on, I was like, you know what? I could get down with some water polo. <laughs> and pretty soon after that, I ended up. Uh, quitting the football team and jumping on board for water polo, and that was kind of full speed ahead. Really had a great time playing water polo and ended up a pretty decent swimmer and water polo player. I lettered in both for uh, three years each and made it to states on a couple of relay teams for our swim team. So all in all, it was a pretty awesome experience and pretty unplanned as well. Other than that, my dad would take us camping or we'd go hiking, and my dad would always tell stories about both him and my grandpa, they were both in Boy Scouts and how they had gone on camping trips and hiking trips all over the place and done some really cool stuff. So despite school and playing sports and having a social life, talking to girls and doing fire explorers, I uh, decided to stick it out with the Boy Scouts and uh, achieve my Eagle Scout just about at the last possible second before I turned 18. In all, I'm really glad I decided to stick with that and not quit because I had about every indication and every reason to justify quitting. I mean, not only through all the merit badges and everything else that Boy Scouts use and kind of life experiences, but just the fact that my parents have always kind of instilled in us that, hey, if you're going to start something, you better finish it. You can't just say, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. They didn't force me to finish. They said it was my choice. I'm glad they left the choice up to me, and I'm, I'm glad I did finish it. Got to do some pretty cool stuff. We kayaked a few miles out into the ocean in the Florida Keys. I lived on an island for a week. Did a two-week hiking trip in New Mexico. Been up to Canada a few times. We would do some hikes and some campouts up there. And really just a fantastic experience with having the combination of sports, but also hobbies like Boy Scouts and, and Fire Explorers. You still camp pretty regularly? Not as much as I'd like. At least once or twice a year, we'll get out. One of those probably doesn't really count, though. A tradition that probably started about 15 or 20 years ago with some guys who were really young on the fire department at the time. They uh, started an annual canoe trip, and so they go about an hour and a half west of here into Indiana, kind of right on the Indiana-Michigan line, and it's called a canoe trip, but you basically go up for a couple of days, you drink, you camp, you just chill out at this lake. It's gotten pretty big. They bring bands in, they'll have a trivia night, and then uh, Saturday, you just kind of get in a canoe and float down the river for eight hours drinking. <laughs> nice. So... That started out as like four or five guys about 15 or 20 years ago. And now it's grown to where some years there's more than 100 people there. Like it's, it's insane. So that's one of the camping trips that I'll take every year. So it's not exactly so much camping as it is just hanging out in a tent. But then a couple of years ago, my lieutenant, another guy that I work with, 
And one of our battalion chiefs, we ended up going on a uh, hiking trip in New Hampshire. So we hiked the uh, presidential traverse in Mount Washington in the uh, White Mountains in New Hampshire for five days. That was unbelievable. Scenery was spectacular. The, the weather was fantastic. And it was probably one of the cooler trips I've been on. What was school experience like the socially? And you still have a lot of friends from high school? Yeah, actually, I have quite a few friends from high school and even grade school that I talked to. I was pretty lucky. I went to parochial schools for uh, both grade school and junior high once we moved up here to Toledo. And a lot of the classmates that I had from that parochial school ended up going to high school with us and still a lot of my closest friends, even now, some of them live a couple hours away. and We still talk regularly and hang out as much as possible. A bunch of the guys in my eighth grade class ended up going to St. Francis de Sales, which is one of the two all-men's Catholic schools here in Toledo. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I'd pretty much go back to high school right now if they would let me. It was a blast. We had a ton of fun. We got away with a lot of stuff. Uh, learned a lot of stuff that you didn't realize you were learning at the time, uh, and not necessarily stuff out of a textbook either. Kind of like firefighting. Exactly, yeah. Like Sometimes you don't realize you learned something until uh, you can look back and say, oh, hey, wait a second. One of the cool things about St. Francis, it's a, it's a pretty like traditional school where I'd say probably at least 60% of the people that uh, go to St. Francis are legacies of some sort where their brothers, dads, uncles, grandfathers, whoever had gone to St. Francis. And a lot of the teachers uh, at St. Francis stay there for years. So a lot of the teachers that we had had taught people's brothers or dads or uncles. And, and so that was pretty cool to hear stories. The schoolwork was intense. There's no doubt about that. It was definitely a college prep high school. I had a ton of AP courses and they didn't really cut athletes much slack when it came to uh, scrimping on homework or tests or anything else. So they definitely pushed you hard athletically and academically, which was good. Probably really good for me because it kept me somewhat focused. One of the cool things, though, is everybody always asks, they're like, oh, man, that had to be horrible going to high school with no girls around. And actually, to tell you the truth, I thought it was pretty great because nobody really cared what you looked like if you rolled out of bed and just rolled right into class. There was no big deal. Uh, we had to wear a coat and tie every single day, but there was no rule other than the fact you had to have a coat and tie every single day. So what most of us did was we would just go to Goodwill and find the most hideous leisure suit or <laughs> velour shirt or like polyester pants that you could possibly find and wear those to school. What these just ugly felt floral ties. Nice. It was hilarious because we were just relaxed. It was a lot of fun. And as long as you met that dress code, you were, you were good to go. Nobody said anything. So it was cool. I, I really enjoyed it. And with high school guys that I still hang out with to this day, I mean, anytime we're together, we're always joking around and telling stories and the same stuff that you've heard a million times, but every time you bring it up, you're still laughing like it's the first time. A lot of water under the bridge. Oh yeah, absolutely. What about first jobs and work experience before you end up getting into the fire service? So my first job was probably in like sixth grade. I worked a couple hours a week uh, at this jewelry shop in my hometown and I would just sweep up and kind of like Windex all the jewelry cases and run little odd errands right there in, uh, on Main Street and downtown and ended up being a caddy at a country club kind of near my parents' house. And then once I ended up getting to high school, that was a pretty good job too, actually, because I just rode my bike there on any day that I wanted to work. They were pretty low-key as far as uh, the caddies went because there were so many guys that wanted to do it that you didn't really have to have a schedule. Like if you woke up in the morning and wanted to work, you just ride your bike or convince your parents to drop you off at the club and hang out in the caddy shack for a little bit before you catch a round. And then when you were done, you were done. And if you wanted to go out again, you could stay. If not, you could leave. So 
that was pretty cool as a high schooler because I mean something else pops up could uh go hang out with your friends after that one round rather than sticking around for a set time but after that especially as I started getting involved in swimming and water polo started teaching some swim lessons also lifeguarding but then I also would volunteer to be a swim instructor, but also a coach uh, for some special needs people in swimming for the Special Olympics, which was really cool. I mean, probably one of the better experiences of my life was really teaching people from all walks of life to swim. One of the other kind of volunteer things that pretty much our entire swim team did between the uh, Special Olympics coaching was something called the Josh Project, which is a nonprofit that was founded by a woman here in Toledo. And their sole purpose is to teach inner city youth how to swim. The woman who started this foundation, her son, Josh, drowned after falling into a lake and wasn't able to swim. So she was determined to teach people to swim that historically hadn't really had the opportunity to learn how to swim. She would always tell people, look, you don't have to be Michael Phelps. You don't have to be an expert swimmer. You just need to know enough swimming to survive. And it really resonated with a lot of people. And it was really cool to kind of see people as they would progress through that. So that was all before really I even got out of high school. So I don't know how I had any time to get really anything done then. Uh, but I guess that also carries me over into my current life because same kind of thing. When I actually sit down and write down all the stuff that I do, I don't understand how I have time for any of it. But once I was in college uh, and working towards a full-time fire job, I worked at Home Depot in their uh, hardware department there for a while. I worked for a private ambulance company for I don't know, probably about eight months. And then uh, Cedar Point Amusement Park in Sandusky, Ohio, which is about an hour away from here. I had a pretty cake job there as a uh, firefighter EMT for a couple summers, which was, was awesome. I mean, we had pretty much run of the place. We had keys to get into everywhere. A lot of freedom, which was pretty cool. Got to learn a lot and actually got a lot of experience in a relatively quick period of time just because there were so many runs every day, whether they were EMS runs or entrapments there. People hanging their arm outside the roller coaster, right, as they're coming back into the station so they can get out of the train. And their arm gets caught between the concrete platform and the train. So we'd have to go airbag the train sideways to pull their arm out. Stuff like that, which was pretty cool for just being an amusement park firefighter. But from there, I kind of worked my way into getting paid to do this stuff. I want to get down to Cedar Point. That's on my list of things to do in the next couple of years. My girlfriend and I are trying to plan a trip. You got a lot of great outdoor bike trails and there's an indoor bike park down near you too. Yeah. Cedar Point is fantastic. I mean, I don't even know how many roller coasters they have now, but they're always adding stuff and, and it's definitely worth the trip. I mean, you could spend two days there and not be bored, but yeah, there's quite a few bike trails and bike parks throughout Northern Ohio, not even just kind of in Northwest Ohio where we're at, but even once you get over to Cleveland, too, and like the Cuyahoga National Forest and stuff like that, I mean, there's quite a few good options for that kind of stuff. We've got a mountain biking club, like on the fire department. I'm not a part of that, but we've got probably 20 or 30 guys that meet pretty regularly and are always going out riding trails and having a good time and telling tall tales. It's like fishing, right? <laughs> sure. Everybody's got a, oh, yeah, I crashed my bike doing this. It's pretty cool to hear some of those guys. They're crazier than I am. You see some of the GoPro videos these guys have got when they go to some of these mountains out west. I mean, I'll try just about anything, but I don't know that I'm uh, cut out for some of that stuff. It's all sorts of ways to hurt yourself. Exactly. You were obviously exposed to the fire service as a kid, but your first exposure was actually even before that. Tell me a story about coming home from the hospital. <laughs> yeah, my mom always likes to joke around that me being a fireman's all my dad's fault. Because after I was born, before even going home, my parents swung by my dad's firehouse. He had forgotten something, I had to pick it up. 
I mean, I had so many awesome memories from hanging out at my dad's firehouse as a kid. To be honest, one of the first movies, non-kid movies, I should say, that uh, I ever remember watching was Backdraft in the lounge at my dad's firehouse. I was watching it with his crew, and they really only made me leave during some of the steamier parts. I remember riding in parades, playing around in some of my dad's gear, going through every compartment on the rig, trying to memorize where stuff was. Like It was great. I mean, I still remember those days very vividly, and I think that's definitely had a huge impact on kind of where I'm at right now. And beyond the firefighter EMT work at the park, you started volunteering after that? Yeah, so actually I had started volunteering at Perrysburg Township Fire Department probably a summer or two before I started working at Cedar Point. I didn't even know that they had firefighters and EMTs at Cedar Point. So a buddy of mine had worked there and said, hey, I don't know if you're looking for a summer job, but Cedar Point's just open their application for firefighters and the money isn't real good, but you get free tickets to Cedar Point, you get a free season pass and you can kind of make your own schedule. So it was great. I was working shifts there. I was working at Home Depot. And then once I left Home Depot and the ambulance company, and I started working for uh, Springfield Township, one of our other suburban departments, I would work at 24 there. And then I'd be off for a couple hours and I'd go to Cedar Point, work at 24 there. And I I was working more than I was home when when I was probably 18, 19, 20 years old. And it was great. I mean, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And again, staying out of trouble, key. Yeah, really, if nothing else, it just kept me out of trouble. Exactly. So you noted, which is new to me, is a difference between city departments being civil service positions and then a township. So can you talk to me about that? Yeah, so Ohio's kind of weird. They have cities and townships and villages and all kinds of municipalities like that. And for whatever reason... The way the state law is written that city jobs have to be civil service. So you have to do your traditional tests. So it could be if you want to work for the fire department, the police department, if you want to be a meter maid, if you want to be a secretary in the water department, or if you want to be a guy that plows snow, you got to take a civil service test. But if you want to work for a township, they don't have to do a civil service test. It's just like any other job. You apply, put a resume in, maybe do an interview, and that's that. There's no test. So uh, the first apartment that I had worked for was Springfield Township, one of our suburban departments. They've got four stations, a pretty good call load, got a decent number of fires there. So that was good kind of being able to slide in there without having to go through the full civil service process yet. It kind of allowed me to get in pretty quick because a lot of our suburban departments end up kind of being feeders to the city of Toledo. Not always, but in some cases they are. And so when I got hired at Springfield Township, a lot of guys had just left to go to Toledo because they had just hired two big classes over the past 18 months. So it just worked out well that all these guys had just left to go to the Toledo Academy. And from the time that they uh, opened the applications to the time I was hired and started on the fire department was probably two months, maybe three months tops, which is absolutely unheard of when it comes to civil service tests from the time you fill out an application to take the test, to do your interviews and backgrounds and everything else. You could be looking at a year to two years sometimes for some of that stuff. So that was a really good opportunity to jump into a spot without having to go through the whole rigmarole of the civil service process just yet. That was definitely a good way to to kind of get my feet in the door and get my feet wet. Uh, But you did end up writing a test, right? Yes. So to get on Toledo, we have to do the test. It's a lot different now than it was when I took the test. But when I took the test, you had to fill out your application. They sent you the letter and everything. They told you where you could get the study guide. And then uh, you would have to go downtown to the convention center and sit there with two or 3,000 other people and take the test for, I think it was like four hours or four and a half hours they gave you to take the test. And the crazy thing was I really wanted the job, but 
for the two months that they probably had before we took the test that they gave you the study guide, no matter what I did, I couldn't find the motivation to study. I'd look at it. I'd try to study every once in a while, and I just couldn't kind of really commit to it. But something kind of snapped in that last week, right before the test. I pretty much just secluded myself in my room and sat at a desk and rewrote the entire study guide about three times, just word for word, and then went and took the test. Somewhere between two and 3,000 people took the test, somehow got lucky and scored 10th on the test just for not really studying much until the last week. <laughs> awesome. But when I left, I was pretty confident about how it had gone, but also not super thrilled. Like, oh, man, I mean, it went okay, but probably could have done better. So when I found out I scored 10th, I was pretty shocked. The crazy thing was when I got hired, both our written test and then the physical agility tests were the same ones that the city had been using for about 30 years at that point. So since then, they've changed and gone to some computerized written testing and then gone to a different standardized physical assessment test. But it was pretty cool to be kind of hired under the same guidelines that a lot of the senior guys that we got hired on with did as well. You almost missed your chance with a background check screw up? (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of crazy. So our background packet is, it's like a 40 or 50 page packet. Um, And so the Toledo Police Detective Bureau, they have a bunch of different sections. They have like robbery, they have homicide, obviously they have auto theft. They have all these units and one of them is a background unit. They give you this paperwork and they want you to fill out this giant job history form. And then you go meet with the detective. You kind of go over it line by line for jobs, for school, literally everything you think of. They initial each page, you initial each page. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to do our investigation and you'll hear from us in a couple months. And so they even do so much as they go and they interview your neighbors. They start knocking on your neighbor's doors. Hey, do you know anything about this guy? What kind of stuff does he do? Is he into drugs? Has he ever been in trouble with the law? They go through this whole litany of things. It's actually pretty involved. And when I sat down with the detective, he was a really cool dude. Actually, he just passed away last year. Tragically, he was a really good dude, really well-respected on the police department. But he had just moved to the detective bureau from the gang unit. So he was really chill. He's like, hey, man, I'm not one of these guys that's just trying to hide out in the background unit like... I'm just here slowing down, the, scaled down the gang unit, so here I am. We'll go through all this stuff. I'm not worried about it. You probably won't hear anything from me until I tell you that we're 100% ready to go. So he calls me maybe six weeks later. It was a little earlier than I had expected to hear from him, so I was kind of worried. And he goes, hey, nothing to worry about. I just want to let you know that I'm getting called back to the gang unit because they're ramping it back up, so I'm transferring your profile to this new detective. I said, all right. He's like, he'll investigate it, and you'll hear from him probably four weeks. So in four weeks, I get a letter at my house that says, hey, you have uh, failed the background. You have X number of points. You have three areas of rejection. You blatantly lied on this report and all this stuff. And so my heart about stopped when I read that letter. If you would like to appeal, you have to go down to the government center, the 17th floor or whatever, and meet with the civil service lawyer, and they'll explain the process from there. So I go downtown and go up to the 17th floor and, and sit down with the lawyer and he's explaining, well, you said that you had resigned from this ambulance company to go work at this fire department. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what happened. He goes, well, actually, we found out that you had gotten suspended and then you had gotten fired. And since you lied about that on the background report, that's why you failed it. And so if you want to appeal it, you can, but I don't know that you'll be able to be successful. And so at this point, I was still worried, but confident because I knew that I hadn't been lying. So 
long story short, I found out later on what happened is this new detective who was not only new to my background, but had literally just gotten promoted to detective recently, rather than actually calling the numbers that I had listed for certain individuals for certain jobs, just looked it up in the phone book and called this ambulance company and ended up talking to what they assume now was one of the dispatchers and was like, hey, did this Jake Hoffman guy work at your company? And the dispatcher was like, oh, yeah, he got in some trouble. I'm pretty sure he got suspended, and he never showed up again, so they <laughs> fired him. And so the detective was like, all right, good enough for me. And so that's what he had wrote down. And so to fix that, to kind of get to the bottom of that and fix that, I had to call the human resources department for the major health system in our area that runs this ambulance company. And they're not only in our area, they're all throughout the state and actually kind of this whole region. I mean, they're a pretty sizable company. So I had, I think, 10 days to appeal this background result. It was on like a Tuesday that I had to appeal it. And I had to appear in front of the entire city of Toledo Civil Service Commission, which is five or seven people. And basically it was just me standing at a podium and they're all sitting up at the front of the room behind a big desk. And it was pretty intimidating. So I'm calling this HR department and I'm calling them and I'm calling them. And, and they're like, all right, well, you need to speak to this gentleman. He's the vice president of HR and he's not available right now. And so I'm trying to get a hold of my old bosses. Well, the one had retired and moved to Germany. The other one had quit and left for another job. So I was having no luck really finding any of my old supervisors. And then finally, the day before my appeal, so it would have been Monday, I get a phone call at about eight o'clock in the morning. It says, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm the vice president of this human resources department for this company. And judging by all the emails and voicemails I've gotten from you, uh, looks like you have a problem that I can hopefully help you with. And he's like, sorry, I was out of town for the past week. And if you can come into my office sometime today, we can figure this out. And I was like, well, I can be there in about 20 minutes if you're going to be there. And so he's like, yeah, let me pull your file. See you in about 20 minutes. And so by the time I got there, parked and got up to the sixth or seventh floor, wherever his office was at this place. And he pretty much brings me right into his office. He's got my whole personnel file laid out on the counter. And he's like, I have no idea where any of this information came from. Here's your two-week notice you gave us because you said you were moving on to this fire department. Here's this glowing review that your supervisor gave you at the exit interview. And that's recommended we hire you back if you ever came back. And so he ended up writing me a, a long letter that I included with my appeal. And even though I was told that the chances of winning the appeal were pretty slim, uh, ended up luckily succeeding and getting on the job. So it was sort of your intro to bureaucracy and red tape. Oh, yeah. All this guy had to do is just ask someone who actually knew my situation with leaving the company, but instead took somebody's word for it over the phone. I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they just fired that guy. Strong detective work, Columbo. Yeah, exactly. Once you were hired, how was Academy? So our academy starts out pretty simple. It's definitely paramilitary, very structured. Our first week, uh, I don't think we stood at attention in formation for any less than probably two hours during roll call and inspection and kind of getting smoked, whether it was push-ups or uh, running stairs in the tower, which our department is always called backdrafts for whatever reason. No matter what experience you have, no matter what department you come from, everybody has to go through the full 16-week fire academy. And then after that, everyone who is prior EMT or paramedic, they kind of do a short little two-week internship and protocol review, and then they hit the line while everyone else has to go through the other 10 or 12 weeks uh, EMT school. Our academy was great. We started on December 3rd, and it was everything I could have hoped for. It was actually a lot like high school in the fact that you don't realize how much fun you had until you're not there anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't feel like 
getting super crazy ironing my uniforms and, and getting yelled at nonstop anymore. But it was really cool. It was a great experience. And especially being a guy who had some limited experience prior to getting on the job, I think the best thing I ever did was just keep my mouth shut. I had a lot of guys telling me, hey, just be quiet, keep your head down, just work hard, you'll be fine. And uh, there was a couple of guys in my own squad that didn't know I was a firefighter beforehand um, just because I, I didn't want to bring it up. And it didn't hurt that there was also a couple other guys in my class and, and in my squad who were uh, very boisterous and loud about their perceived prior experience. So the instructors would shut them down pretty hard. But it was great. I mean, we had a pretty big class. We had 43, I believe. And our training academy was not built for classes that size. So it was very tight and squeezed in. But it was a blast. Got to do a lot of cool stuff. Had a lot of great instructors with a lot of experience. Some of them I still consider friends and mentors now and just great guys to to lean on and learn from. Did you have to do EMT stuff on top of that? Uh, no. So I had already had my EMT. So luckily I just did the fire portion and then did my ride along time. And that was pretty much it. I got to hit the line pretty early, which was nice. Right out of the academy, I got assigned to engine three, A shift. And I think it was like my second day, maybe third uh, before I went to a working fire. And it was pretty consistent. In Toledo, what we do is once you graduate the academy, you're given uh, three four-month rotations for your probationary period. So you're assigned to a different engine house each for four months, typically all on one shift, but they'll move you from battalion to battalion, maybe an engine house to a house that has a truck or that has a rescue, maybe an ambulance, just so you can get different perspectives from different people throughout the city. In my first rotation there at Engine 3 on A shift, I mean, we had a ton of fire. It was crazy. Engine 3 is a really good company. Um, but they don't burn as much as they used to. But I think I had maybe five or six days on the job before I had three first two working fires, which was completely unheard of from the suburban departments I had worked on. I mean, sometimes you were lucky to, to individually, personally go to four or five a year. And here I was going to three on my fifth day on the job. So that was pretty cool. I had great crews as a rookie to learn from, uh, great senior men that been around for a long time, guys that had worked their entire careers in the inner city. The one guy, my first engine driver, he was like a robot, like a GPS almost. Like you'd hear an address come in and Steve would be like, all right, yeah, that's going to be the fourth house on the right past Michigan. Uh, it's White House, Black Shutters. There's a hydrant, three houses down on the other side. It's a six inch main. Steve had been at engine three for 30 years, minus about four months. And so he knew the ins and outs of the neighborhood. He was just a great guy. Kids would know they could bring their bicycles in. Steve would help them fix their bikes. Uh, he's the only guy that I've ever known that when he retired, threw a party for the neighborhood. He actually uh, rented a couple ice cream machines and put signs all through the neighborhood and said, hey, today's Steve's last day. Come to the firehouse and you can get all the ice cream you want. Wow, that's awesome. So guys like him that I got to learn from were awesome and very, very instrumental in guiding me to be the person that I am now. And then you went to engine four? Yeah, so I left engine three and went to engine four in A-shift, just coincidentally. You don't always go sequentially. Engine four is in battalion two, a little bit slower than uh, engine three, not as many fires. Not that I was upset, but I was kind of bummed out that I wasn't going to another busy house. But things have a way of working themselves out. Funny how nothing cool ever happens when you get hurt, right? Got hurt a couple times, and it's never doing anything cool. You pretty much have to come up with a good story for it just to not sound lame. The first person that I'd ever actually pulled out of a fire was as a rookie at Engine 3. I had eight weeks maybe on the job and had this high-rise project department. 
ended up just being a, a fire alarm. We forced the door to this place, and you can see the guy laying kind of half off the couch. The kitchen's on fire. The whole apartment's full of smoke. And so fast forward, I don't know, three months, and it's probably my third or fourth shift at Engine 4, and we end up going to an apartment fire. First arriving crews pulling a victim out of this apartment as we're pulling up. So we help them get him down to the ambulance. We go inside. We finish the search. We put the fire out. Everything's done. And we're walking back to the rig, and I managed to step in the only pothole in the entire parking lot and sprain my ankle. <laughs> so it wasn't in the process of dragging the guy out, doing any of that stuff. It was literally just walking back to the rig. In spraining my ankle, I bought myself some light-duty time for about four or five weeks, which as a rookie is something you obviously feel real bad about and don't want to do. Uh, and I got sent to headquarters, so it was kind of a double win. I didn't get sent to the shop. Didn't get sent to one of these other places where a rookie can not slack off, but also not be in front of all the administrative chiefs 24-7. So I was definitely a little worried about that, but it ended up working out pretty well because after I was on light duty and my ankle was all healed up, they had to balance some shifts because there had been a lot of bids and people moving around from station to station. So it left a lot of vacancies. And so in order to balance the shifts, our operations chief had asked me, he's like, hey, would you mind moving to a different shift if we needed you to? And I said, no, chief. I mean, wherever you need me to go, I'll go. So that is how I ended up going to uh, sevens on C shift to finish out my second rotation, which was absolutely just a total dream come true. I mean, sevens is where I work now. And in my mind, there's no other firehouse like it in Toledo or probably anywhere. It's definitely home. And especially the culture that we've got there is Definitely ingrained and respected on our job. It was pretty easy to see even from the beginning days of our academy when all the instructors are introducing themselves and talking about where they work presently or where they have worked. And almost all of our instructors either did work or had at some point worked at Engine 7 or Squad 7. And so a lot of us were like, man, like these guys must be really doing something right. And since 1863, I believe it is, maybe a little earlier. Station 7 has been at the exact same corner of Franklin and Bancroft in Toledo. There's been three different engine houses over that time period. The one we're in right now is 50 years old. It's not in the greatest shape, but it's home. And it's got smudge marks on the walls and pictures of old fires and fire helmets that have gotten run over. Those hang right in the kitchen and are affectionately known as the A-Shift Driving Museum (laughs) because for whatever reason, it it seems to be A-Shift that runs over people's helmets. (laughs) It's just great. We're uh, kind of a little bit of a swagger, I guess, from sevens. And I got to learn that as a rookie, which was very cool, because for a long time, they didn't send rookies through sevens. So I got to learn from a lot of guys that had been there a long time and said, all right, yeah, you can have a little bit of a swagger once you become a sevens guy, but you're also not a jerk. Like, you're always helping other people out. You're not going to think less or talk less about people. You're going to work hard, let your work ethic and your skills kind of speak for themselves and just have a good time. And it's been awesome. Probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was one of the first days on the job, I'm washing dishes, right? Like the rookie jumps up from the table. He wants to be the last one to eat, obviously, but the first one done so he can start the dishes. So I jump up and I start doing dishes. And The senior man, he gets up and he's going to help me out with some drying. So we're standing next to each other. I'm washing, I'm scrubbing, I'm handing him plates. Well, I hand him a plate and as I'm letting go of it because he's grabbed it, I noticed there's still some food on there. I said, oh, hey, Ollie, let, let me take that back. I'll, I'll fix that. And he's like, kid, 
don't worry about it, man. Half of Washington is drying. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. And, and I wish I could have recorded Ollie saying this because this guy's a character and it cracked me up. I laughed hard when I read that because I was just talking yesterday on our shift about how being in different firehouses, how very commonly people are the same. Oh my God. Yeah. I had always heard it as a, a good dryer can get that. No matter where you go, the faces may be different, but the people are the same. Tell me about your first run on Squad 7. You mentioned Johnny Martin and the Plaza Apartments. Yeah, my first run at Squad 7 as a rookie, I think I'm there all of like two minutes and we catch an EMS run uh, at the Plaza Apartments, which are just apartments we go to all the time. Right across the street from the Pluto Art Museum. We get off the rig, we walk in. I don't know these guys at all. I've literally been there just a few minutes. Got a pretty senior guy with us. He's driving. It's He's probably got 25 years out at this time. Our officer's a pretty seasoned guy. He's been at sevens alone, I think, about 20 years. And me with two seconds on the job in the back. So I've got all the equipment, right? I got all the EMS gear. And, and they're just walking in ahead of me. And so we go up to this apartment. We knock on the door. The lady opens the door. And her eyes get real big. And she goes, oh, hell no. I hate you, MFers. You and you and you. And points at me. And I'm like, lady, I've never even been here before. <laughs> She's like, get out of here. You're not welcome here. Just get out of here. And the officer's like, uh, okay. So she slams the door. And, and I just always remember Johnny was like, you would be surprised at how often we get that response from people. I'm just like, wow. All right. This is seven. I've never experienced this before, but all right. It was just a funny, rude awakening for being like 7.02 in the morning. All right, so that's how this is going to go. <laughs> Maybe not everyone loves us like we think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what about guides and mentors growing up and coming through the service? Oh, man, I mean, for sure, this is a long, long list. But if I had to pick one, I mean, without a doubt, it's my dad. If I can become half the man my father is, not even just a fireman, but if I can just be half the man my father is, I'll have been wildly successful. He's always been my hero. I mean, even as a little kid, when people are saying, oh, Michael Jordan's my hero, Ken Griffey Jr.'s my hero, or Troy Aikman's my hero. For me, it, it was never a sports guy. It was never an actor. It was never somebody famous. It was just my dad. Just always wanted to be like my dad growing up. His advice and friendship and love. I could never completely or accurately put into words how much he means to me. I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to teach with my dad from time to time. And it's funny, just when I think I've heard every good story that he's got, he's like, oh, hey, let me tell you about this one time that we had a cement mixer roll over on top of this station wagon. And you're like, oh, dad, how have I never heard this story before? He's like, ah, he goes, it wasn't that big of a deal. And tells you the whole story. You're like, that would be like the run of the year for me. Like, that sounds great. He's really humble and just a great teacher, a great friend. You couldn't ask for a better dad. And tight with your brother, too. Yeah. So uh, my brother, Joe, like I said, he's a Toledo fireman as well. And him and I are thick as thieves. We're two years apart. Growing up as kids, we were just like most brothers do. We were basically just taking each other out back and just beating the snot out of each other. I couldn't even begin to guess how many hockey sticks had been broken over each other's backs or how many punches had been thrown and tennis rackets broken. I mean, you name it. If there was something one of us could have hit the other person with, it's happened. He stabbed me with a pencil one time because I called him an idiot when he was doing math homework. <laughs> We would fight like cats and dogs, but probably once we got into high school and especially after that, just really become like best friends for everything. I mean, we do a lot of the same stuff. When I bought a house, he ended up moving in with me, lived with me for two years before he ended up buying his own house. And the good thing about Joe is I'll bounce ideas off him all the time, but he definitely keeps me grounded. If 
if I have a stupid idea, he is not afraid and not shy to tell me it's a dumb idea in not so many words. Besides him, I mean, there's so many guys I could list. As far as senior men on our job, two of the guys that are actually two of the most senior guys, I think they're like number two and number five in seniority right now uh, on our department are uh, Scott Hathaway and Mike Malenkoff, uh, who are both coincidentally enough, I suppose, uh, sevens guys, uh, old sevens guys. Scott is now the uh, engine driver at engine 16. And uh, Mike Malenkoff left sevens, went to our other rescue squad, rescue squad 15, and is now at engine nine. So still busy companies. Both these guys have been on for 32 years. Both their careers have been spent in the inner city. And they are two of the most humble and hardworking firemen that I've ever been around. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard either one of these guys complain about anything. At 32 years on the job, they're not expecting the rookie to to go out and wash the rig. They're not expecting the rookie to clean the bathrooms themselves. These guys are are doing all the right stuff all the time, whether it's wearing seatbelts, going on runs, whether it's being out on the apparatus floor at 7.02, as soon as roll call's over to check their rig out, they're not drinking coffee and chit-chatting for 20 minutes or an hour. They just do all the right stuff when, in some respects, they can slack off, right? Like, a guy with 32 years on the job, one of the most senior guys on the job, probably doesn't have to clean toilets, probably doesn't have to wash the rig and detail the rig every day, especially considering they're on busy companies, but both these guys do probably two of the most inquisitive guys that I've ever seen, regardless of how much seniority they have. I mean, both of these guys are just always trying to learn new things, learn new ways to do things, learn ways to improve on ways they used to do things. If I could be like these guys when I have 32 years on the job, it'll be a successful career for sure. And then uh, a couple other guys, Jamie Morlock's another one of my really good friends. Uh, I actually work with him he had a bid to uh, the rescue at sevens on a shift. I'm on B shift, but actually January 1st, I just got moved to uh, our special operations bureau for a temporary detail. So for an undetermined amount of time, I'll be up there running some tech rescue and USAR training. And that's with Jamie. So he's on kind of the same plan. He's been up at special operations though for about a year and a half or two years, just a great firefighter, great instructor. Uh, we bounce ideas off each other all the time in some respects, even finish each other's sentences. A lot of times we're on the same page and, and it works pretty well. My buddy, Andrew Sauter, he's a lieutenant at Springfield Township where I had uh, worked before. Just one of my great friends and just same kind of thing. Humble, hardworking, great leader. Just try to learn as much as I can from him. And we have some fantastic chiefs on our job as well. One of them, Battalion Chief Matt Brixey, he's currently my boss in special operations, but before I even got on the fire department, he had taught my uh, firefighter one class at our community college. So I've known Matt since he was a private before he was even an officer. He's been just a huge mentor to me. Battalion Chief Bryce Blair, Battalion Chief Bob Krause are two of our line battalion chiefs in Battalion One, two of the smartest and most aggressive, kind of old school, gruff battalion chiefs. You couldn't ask for a better guy to work for. Like if you picture, all right, what kind of chief do I want to work for? And I let you see these guys. You're like, all right, yeah, these are the guys. I have a huge list of people that I look up to and have so much to pay it forward just because so many people have paid it forward to me. The assistant chief of our department, John Kaminsky, I first met him when he was a captain at headquarters and I was assigned there on light duty. And as he's rose up through the ranks, he's always been able to give me some good advice and feedback and just some guidance over the years uh, take a chance on me by bringing me up to uh, special operations to help out. I was pretty lucky to get onto the UL panel for the fire attack study. 
So some guys from that study that are some names you might recognize, like Ray McCormick, Sam Hiddle, Dennis Laguerre, Danny Doyle, and more. I mean, there's there's far too many guys to mention on that panel that really took a pretty young fireman under their wing and answered my questions, didn't shoot me down necessarily when I had questions or, or had a statement about how we did things and really pushed me to grow and learn and really not be shy because with all honesty, I was starstruck when I showed up for our first panel meeting and all these big names are sitting around me. And it was a great experience. And then last but not least, guys like Mike Champo, JJ Cassetta, Steve Robertson, Ron Smith, Augie Matt, just so many fantastic guys from all over the country that I've got to meet through training, whether teaching or taking classes. Now I can say last and most certainly not least would be two guys that you've interviewed already, and that's Andrew Broussard and Mike Tazarski, two of my favorite people on the planet. I don't believe that I know a single person that is as good of a fireman or as good of a human being as either of those guys are. Just incredibly humble, incredibly smart, and got myself very lucky to have both those guys on speed dial. Just absolutely fantastic human beings. So outside of all that inspiration, have you always been pretty internally motivated? Yeah, for me, it's always kind of been an internal motivation. I'm not really even sure how to kickstart that, but pretty much my entire life, I've been more or less impervious to uh, external motivation. Whether it was studying to get on the job or it was studying for finals or working on a project in school, term paper, no matter what anybody said, until I could somehow find some internal motivation, you could pretty much forget about it. But then once I find that motivation, it was full steam ahead. It gets knocked out quick, but sometimes it's easier than others, I suppose, for uh, me to find that internal motivation in some things. I mean, some things, pretty much anything related to the job, I've always kind of been a nerd about. When I was in high school, like I said, I started out as a, as a fire explorer uh, at age 14 and had a lot of guys, great mentors that kind of helped guide me along in the fire service and let me make some mistakes without really ruining a reputation. It was right about the time when, I don't know if you were ever on the Firehouse forums back in the day, but before Facebook and MySpace and social media, the Firehouse forums were like the shit, man. Like that was the place to be if you wanted to talk fire stuff and learn fire stuff. So when I was in high school and starting off as a fire explorer, that was when the Firehouse forums had just started and were kind of getting big. I mean, I was very motivated to get on the Firehouse forums every single day and read and learn but I always wasn't as motivated necessarily to uh, do my homework. <laughs> so sometimes it was a miracle that uh, anything got done in time to get turned in. You mentioned the UL panel, but how'd you get involved in instructing, how that started? out? So the UL, that was more or less, I just wanted to take a long shot. It was shortly after our line of duty deaths here in Toledo on Magnolia Street. And I really was kind of committed to learning how that happened, why it happened, and what we could do to prevent it. So I kind of dove headfirst into modern fire research and fire dynamics and figured, hey, you know what? I'm a young guy. I'll apply for this UL panel. Probably won't get it, but I'll write these responses to the questions that they have and send in a resume and we'll see how it goes. And pretty shortly thereafter, I got an email that said, hey, you're accepted to the panel. And it was kind of uh, all history from there. I was shocked. Uh, that out of all the guys that had put in, that they had selected some punk from Toledo, Ohio. But what an absolutely fantastic experience that was. When I first got involved teaching, though, that was at our local community college where I had done my firefighter and EMT training. 
one of my captains at Springfield Township, that suburban fire department that I had started working for, he asked me one day, he's like, hey, would you be interested in making some extra money being a, a lab assistant for the EMT classes that I run? So like, yeah, I could probably do that. The college is relatively close to my house, like just be some extra cash. So I pretty much had zero responsibility other than teaching people how to take blood pressures, or I would just play a victim for the EMT students, let them put a splint on me or whatever else. So it wasn't necessarily teaching other than just kind of being there. And then after a while of doing that, they started to ask me, hey, can you run the pump for the engine for these live burns we're going to do in the fire classes? Or, hey, can you uh, be one of the state proctors for a ladder throw evolution for this fire class? And so to do that, I had to get my assistant instructor certification and, and go through that class. And then Kind of from there, I, I had taken an interest in training in my combination department where I had started as a volunteer. And uh, I asked if I could help some of the drills. So I started helping with some drills. And then the chief started asking me to run some occasional drills. And really, that probably pushed me into teaching because that was a good chance to make mistakes without really any repercussions. Like it, it was just growing pains. And everybody kind of understood it and definitely molded how I teach and what I teach. But short of that, as far as Toledo Fire goes, I was first assigned to our Toledo Fire Training Bureau, partially because of being involved at the UL panel. They had initially asked me to come out and teach fire behavior because they're like, all right, hey, he's the UL guy now. Like He should come teach fire behavior. So they kind of took a chance on me and signed me to work under some experienced officers, one of which Chief Matt Brixey, who at the time was just a captain but again, who I'd known for years since he had taught my first fire class. So just again, a guy who's been just a, a great mentor to me, uh, kind of took me under his wing and kind of showed me the ropes. I guess I did an okay job in fire behavior. So they asked me to stay on to help teach ladders and ventilation and forcible entry rotation. And then also be an assistant instructor for uh, fire attack. And I've taught two more academy classes since then. So I guess the moral of the story is hopefully you can find somebody that believes in you and sets you up for success, but also isn't afraid to let you uh, fail and help you through it because that's been definitely huge in my growth, not only as a firefighter, but also as a fire instructor. And just stay in a yes mode. So when the opportunities come up, just have the faith and take the leap and try it. Absolutely. Right now, when I'm assigned to our special operations, they asked me, I probably could have said no. I'm not sure uh, how that would have gone over. They, They gave me the option, but yeah, like anything, I mean, an experience to grow. It's an experience to see a a different aspect of the fire department that you don't typically get to see. And then one benefit is now I guess I get to go to any cool runs, whereas we just covered our district and about half the city. Now when I'm around, any good call I get basically get to go on. So in some ways, my chance of getting a good call is increased. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely a great piece of advice is just say yes, to be open to new experiences and don't be afraid to take that leap. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm only two weeks into this and I uh, I already miss working with my normal crew and the normal firehouse antics and everything, but it's going to be a good opportunity to learn and to grow and just set the stage for whatever ends up coming next. What's been the most challenging part of instructing? I would say the most challenging part as far as being a department instructor and an academy instructor is following state curriculum. I know a lot of places are having trouble with that where the way the books are written compared to the way that we actually do things is not exactly matching up. So when I'm teaching recruits at the academy, trying to teach to the book and to the state test while also not preparing them to fail when they hit the line 
one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was in the academy that I've passed on since then to recruits is, hey, look, you have to have a black pen in your pocket. When I was in the academy, we had a list of stuff that you had to have on your person at all times. And that was two black pens, a notebook, a quarter, a comb, and your ID. The comb was a holdover from years and years ago, even though most of us just had short hair. It was just one more thing they could ding you on if you didn't have it with you. And then the quarter, kind of jokingly, but also a tradition, was you could call for a ride home when you got fired. (laughs) Because, like I said, our academy wasn't exactly designed for large classes. So uh, we would have to carpool out there. So you would meet uh, with three or four guys from your squad, and you'd load up in a car. So rather than having 40 or 50 cars out there, you'd have maybe 10 or 12. So the joke was, yeah, you have a quarter in your pocket. So when you get fired, you can go to the payphone on the apparatus floor and call your mom or dad for a ride home. So this one instructor had said, hey, look, I know you have to have two black pens on you at all times, but keep a red pen in your pocket. And when we're teaching and you're taking notes, write them in black ink. But when an instructor says, hey, on Toledo, we do it differently and it's X, Y, Z, or in Toledo, we do this pull out the red pen and write it in red ink. So when you're studying, you can kind of distinguish between what do I need to know for the book versus what do I need to know for how we actually do things. And that helped me immensely. And it seems to help our recruits pretty well too. And everybody's got their own culture, their own way of doing things, their own way of loading hose. So I definitely understand the importance of having a curriculum, but sometimes it's definitely challenging to incorporate that into what do you need to know for the test and what do you need to know for the next 25 years? That'd be a huge undertaking to somehow align those two things. In some ways, it's definitely a headache, but it seems to work out all right for us. Really, what we try to do is focus first on the book stuff, focus first on how they want to teach it and what you're going to need to know for the test. And then we try to, at the end of each module, each rotation, really hit home with, all right, so you learned all those basics. Now, here's some tips and tricks Toledo-wise. It's not perfect. I'm sure there's a better way to do it or there's a way we could improve it, but it seems to work okay. Tell me about your involvement with RIT and special ops. You've touched on it a little bit. Yes. Getting involved with RIT was kind of like my interest with uh, getting on the UL panel. After our line of duty deaths, I really kind of sat down and said, hey, what can we learn here? What could we have done differently? And so I never in a million years thought that I'd be traveling around teaching RIT, writing an article about RIT, but I kind of just dove in head first, I guess you could say, after uh, January 26, 2014, and just started to do tons of research. And one of the things that kept encouraging me to dig deeper and deeper was the fact that we go to a lot of house fires. I mean, Toledo is a pretty stereotypical Rust Belt city. We've lost about 100,000 population in the past 40 years. The last number I heard floating around was about 20 to 25,000 vacant homes, uh, not even counting commercial occupancies, but just homes. So a lot of the problems of Detroit, uh, except we're an hour south and about half the size. So for us, a lot of our culture was going to house fires. So when you look at the studies and the statistics that places like Phoenix had come up with after Brett Tarver died in the Southwest supermarket, or Asheville, North Carolina, after Jeff Bowen died in the office building there, and, and these departments had spent a lot of good time and money and blood and sweat and tears, and they'd paid the price to learn some of these lessons. And it's tough to admit, but not that we thought we were immune to it, 
But we're like, oh, yeah, it took him that many guys to get him out of that situation because it was a grocery store. Like, we got a house fire. If we get this in a house or a small apartment, it's, it's no big deal. We do this stuff all the time. Or that was an office building. It's not the exact same. Th- those times don't apply to us. I think we all make that mistake. Oh, absolutely. So once we actually sat down and compared the timeline from our fatal fire to the timelines that other people had encountered, we realized that times were almost dead nuts on. It was freaky how close our timing was. And so it was kind of at that point where it was like, all right, we really need to kind of dig into this and figure out what we can do to improve things. How can we learn from this and not just be like, oh, well, it's not going to happen to us because we'd actually been pretty lucky. We'd had line of duty deaths somewhat recently with heart attacks and other events, but we hadn't lost a guy inside of a fire in like 30 or 40 years. So we'd had a pretty good run of not having an actual interior firefighting line of duty death. And uh, I think we just kind of took it for granted. So kind of like I said with UL, that all led me to not only the writ aspect of things, but also modern fire behavior. Luckily, I've got guys like Dan Madrakowski, Keith Stakes, and Steve Kerber all at UL who I've got to meet over the years and do work with. They're great. The the second I get a question and text them or, or email them, They're awesome about getting back to me and trying to uh, clue a pretty dumb fireman in on some stuff that we definitely take for granted. So as far as writ, that's kind of how I ended up dabbling in that and considering myself a student. I'm a perpetual student of the fire service for sure. But for writ, I just like to keep it simple. I mean, on our job, there's just not a lot of complication. In some ways, it's challenging. For example, we don't have a single policy on going to house fires. Uh, We have a high-rise fire policy. We have a policy that says how you set up writ. We have a policy about search. We have a policy that you have to wear your SCBA inside of a house fire, but we don't have a single policy that says how to go to a house fire because we do it all the time. Everybody kind of knows what to do and, and how it gets run and it goes well. But I feel like a lot of times different places try to overly complicate stuff. There's a lot of techniques that you see that look really cool on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter that if you showed the guys in Salido, they'd just be like, all right, yeah, that's cool, but I'm not going to remember that at 3 o'clock in the morning. Make it easier for me. What can I do? And so really trying to, I don't want to say dumb it down because that makes it sound bad. Like we're not capable of problem solving and critical thinking, but the reality is in a high stress event like that, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really falling back on partially your instincts, but definitely what you've trained on consistently and performing a technique or a tactic that has two or three steps versus eight different steps and requires three pieces of rope and a pulley and a carabiner and you name it, there's a million ways to complicate it. When I'm teaching, a lot of times I just try to think about, especially RIT, all right, what would the senior guys that I work with, what would they say if I said, hey, this is how we're going to do this drill because I saw it on Facebook. And if those guys would probably tell me that it's garbage and and it's not going to work for us, are they just whining and complaining or do they have a point? Like, can we simplify this for our use? So that's really kind of what I try to do with rapid intervention is just keep it simple and effective whenever possible. Hearing you talk about that, one thing that stuck out with me that someone said to me was when you grab victims, you're going to grab them the way they present themselves, whether they're head towards your feet towards you. That just distilled it down for me. And it's funny how you hear things a number of different ways. And someone finally says it in a certain phrasing and it's like, that makes sense. Absolutely. I think of Grant Schwalbe from Estero, Florida, is a buddy of mine. And he travels around teaching a lot about search. And he's really dialed in. He's actually from the same small town that I live in now, uh, which is kind of how we crossed paths originally. 
And in talking with Grant and sitting through some of his classes, he talks about some of the things that you were never taught in fire school or in the academy. And some of those things are, okay, yeah, what happens when you do find Mrs. McGillicuddy, who weighs 200 pounds, who's face down but presenting feet towards you in a small, narrow hallway? You're not always going to have room to turn that person around. They never really prepared us accurately for having patients burned or, or slimy and sweaty and nasty and naked. Um, until later on when they started doing some drills, once I got on departments where one time I saw them lather up rescue Randy with Crisco and vegetable oil. But then at some point somebody realized like, Hey, now that stuff's just on your gear. That's probably not good. So we started using dish soap and I mean, rescue Randy's obviously nothing like a real person when it comes to dragging somebody out of a house, but that dish soap just added a layer of realism as far as people are slimy and sweaty and burn up and you're going to be covered from your shoulders to your knees in their skin sometimes. I mean, I remember learning the blanket drag and the four post seat carry and how to girth hitch webbing around somebody and and all these tactics and tips and tricks in the academy or, or in fire school at the college, because that's what the book said. But at some point, you just got to grab people. Two of those guys that I had mentioned earlier, Scott Hathaway and Mike Malenkoff, another guy that they worked with at Sevens for a long time, Mike Fueling, is another guy. He's one of the most senior guys in our job, and he's pulled tons of people out of house fires. I mean, an insane number of people. And uh, I asked him once, I said, hey, Mike, how many times have you used webbing or rope or anything to pull somebody out of a house fire? And he goes, I bet I've pulled 20 or 30 people. And I can tell you one time we used webbing and it was because this woman was just enormous. It took five of us with webbing to get this woman moving from the bedroom down the hallway. Other than that, it's just always hands-on. Like you said, you can have all kinds of plans, but sometimes having too many plans is just as bad as not having a plan at all. How'd you get involved with FDIC? So originally FDIC, I've mentioned him a couple times now, but Scott Hathaway, who's again, one of my close friends and just an awesome mentor and senior man. He knew a bunch of guys from Indianapolis and in that area who had been teaching at FDIC for a while. And so he'd gotten in with them as an assistant instructor at FDIC and they needed somebody else. Scott put in a good word for me with Lauren Tews and Chief Eric Dryman of the Indianapolis Fire Department, who uh, were the lead instructors for the Benner Search Hot class. So the first year, three or four years ago, they had me out as an unpaid volunteer. And I just kind of helped out, kind of did like the rookie work. I was running around. I was helping do logistics moving tools. I was refilling smoke machines. And then once everything was kind of set, I could help out and reset some of the window props and whatever else, and maybe insert a word or two of advice from that. It's now worked up to three years now with those guys and kind of on board as an actual assistant instructor. And it's just been an awesome experience. I can't thank Eric Dryman and and Lauren Tews enough for, again, just taking a chance on some young dude from Toledo and fitting in with some indie guys. Have you struggled with any physical or mental setbacks along the way? Physically, I had mentioned earlier about spraining my ankle. And then also more recently than that, about two and a half years ago now, I ended up breaking my shoulder, breaking my arm. That was huge. I mean, that was like four months of recovery. They didn't even know that it was broken until it was like six weeks into it. And it had already started to heal. So they couldn't do any pins or anything because it had already started doing what it was going to do. And so that's kind of been an ongoing irritation, I guess you could say, for the past couple of years. The way it healed up, I don't have 100% range of motion. I can still do the job, but it hurts pretty regularly, and the range of motion isn't 100%, maybe about 95%. So I'm a lot more conscious now of how I do things as far as whether it's just reaching for something or it's pulling ceiling or trying to pull myself up into an attic or working out. 
I'm definitely more cognizant of my body positioning and how my shoulder is kind of lined up, I guess you could say. That's just kind of been a disaster over the past couple of years trying to get workers' comp to figure some of that out. I almost feel like it's a war of attrition with workers' comp to where they're like, you know what? All right, yeah, we know it's hurt, but we'll just give you all this paperwork and bureaucracy and appeals and everything else. So you just hopefully give up and we win. And I'm too stubborn to just give up that easy. So mental setbacks, I can definitely say that we're not the busiest fire company in the world, but we're also fairly busy. And I do struggle sometimes with trying to not get burnt out and keeping a good attitude, especially after midnight. <laughs> My captain likes to affectionately refer to me as Midnight Jake. It originally was 2 a.m. Jake, but over the past like year and a half, it, uh, it had become Midnight Jake. I try to be more aware of frustrations. I'm laughing with you and not at you right now. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah, there's only so much you can do, but it is amazing how uh, no matter how pissed off you are and no matter how many EMS runs and goof runs you've had, once you get one fire, you kind of like reset that clock or one good extrication or whatever the case is. It's just like a mood enhancer. And uh, you kind of forget about all those goof runs that you made the, the previous 21 hours of the shift. So I would say mentally it's tough to fight burnout. It's tough to say that just because like my crew is great. No matter how bad of a day we have at work, by the time I get home 20 or 30 minutes after I get off a shift, I'm already ready to go back and hang out with those guys. Mentally, that's a huge aspect of working on a busy department, especially where we don't really have any slow companies anymore. Like I said, our population has decreased by about 100,000, but our runs have almost tripled. And in that time, we've actually cut over 10 companies, I believe it is. So we're going the almost three times the runs with less people each day than they had back then. So there's not really a place to go to slow down short of maybe one or two engine companies, which is good and bad. We're a pretty young department. We've hired a ton of guys in the last 10 years. So it's a good way to get experience quick. But I definitely think it wears on a lot of people being consistently busy all the time. And then where they used to be able to rotate guys out to some of the slower companies when they had guys off on vacation or whatever else, so you go out and work at engine 14 or engine 24 or engine 21 for a day. Um, now, all those places, for the most part, are just as busy as everybody else. So there's not a whole lot of options to slow down. So that is a huge thing mentally is you got to almost in some ways live Kelly day to Kelly day. I mean, you work six days and you get one off. And it's amazing how much of a reset that Kelly day can give you sometimes. Yeah, you got to make it worth it. Yeah, and different ways to unwind and de-stress. Obviously, some people have habits that might be considered a little bit more destructive than others. I'm pretty simple. Once I get some sleep, I'm good to go. I, I don't need a lot, but give me sleep, give me food, give me coffee, and a good workout definitely helps. But for the most part, I think everybody's just got to find their way to unwind, de-stress, and not be afraid to use it. And then obviously, everybody's going to feel different ways about the same experience. And the importance of realizing that helps you kind of be a little bit more empathetic and understanding when... You come in and you're normally used to joking around and having a great time at work with one of the guys on your crew. And then next thing you know, the next day you work, he's like a completely different person when you come in and I mean, don't be afraid to talk to the guy. And also just understand that, yeah, people have bad days. It does seem like at the fire department compared to my experiences with the rest of the world and humanity that at least the guys I work with don't have a lot of bad days. It's pretty great that most of us, at least on my crew, you can come to work and just about forget all the other crap you have going on in life. Not that you're not thinking about it, but 
doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't drive everything you're thinking. I know we have a lot of guys that are going to school. I'm going to school right now. I'm going for my bachelor's. And even though a lot of guys are, I'm going to try to do all my school work at work so I can get paid to do homework. I kind of have the opposite approach. I go to work to work, but also to hang out with my friends. I don't want to have to think about homework, about having to, oh man, I have to go home and cut the grass tomorrow. Like, I prefer not to think about that at work. I prefer to hang out with my friends and play ping pong and foosball and make runs and joke around and pull pranks and just have an all around good time. Yeah, it's good when you can use appropriately the downtime at work to make work a place of enjoyment because there's enough times where it's not. Exactly. And it's funny because I'm sure you guys see the same stuff. There's a crew of young guys. They'll get their work done and then they play video games. That's cool. It's just society. It's not a dig or a fault, but we pretty much have a standing rule at 7D shift that if you bring an Xbox or a PlayStation, it's going to get thrown down the pole hole. <laughs> we don't do that. Like we sit in the kitchen all day and hang out, make fun of each other and throw shit at each other, or we're playing foosball or we're drilling. We just try to do everything as a crew whenever possible. Now I understand people got kids at home, kept them up all night. The baby keeps them up all night. They're not feeling well or whatever. And yeah, like people go up and rack out in a green chair or try to lay low a little bit. But for the most part, Really, on all three shifts at sevens, if you're not sleeping or on a run, you're in the kitchen. Actually, sometimes people are sleeping in the kitchen, just passed out at the chair. <laughs> nice. Station seven's kitchen is pretty notorious on our job for being one of the toughest locations in the city. I would say it's between station five and station seven. Those are the two toughest kitchen tables you're going to see. Both of our stations, that's where everybody hangs out all day long. I mean, the officers don't even go hide up in their room. Once they get their work done, they're down in the kitchen. Same thing. Maybe we're table topping an incident or we're talking about a run that the shift before had or we're watching dumb YouTube videos and laughing at Russian dash cam videos or we're playing cards or we're just making fun of somebody. It's great. And I think that really goes a long way in developing kind of the culture for the firehouse. So you said you'd be okay chatting a bit about how the LODDs affected you and your department as a whole. Yeah. As opposed to sort of driving you towards RIT. What about the other aspects of it? Yeah, that was a crazy day. I was working January 26, 2014 at 528 Magnolia Street. We lost Jamie Dickman and Steve Machinsky. Jamie was a rookie on our department. Like I kind of said earlier, our academy, if you come to us with prior experience and you're already an EMT or a paramedic, you don't have to go through the EMS portion of our academy. So Jamie Dickman had come to us from Perkins Township, which is actually coincidentally right outside of Cedar Point. And uh, he had worked as a fireman there for about 10 years and had finally got hired on Toledo. So he actually got out to the line before their class officially graduated because they don't have their official graduation until the EMT students are done. It was his first working fire as a Toledo firefighter. On the back of engine three with him was Steve Machinsky, who at that time, I believe, had 12 to 15 years on the job. He'd worked at engine three and engine 13, pretty good companies his, his whole career. And it was January. It was cold. It was so cold and it was just snowy. It was a horrible winter. Sunday afternoon, I was working at Engine 16. I think we were watching a movie or something, just kind of a lazy Sunday. We had all day chili on the stove, just hanging out. It was a relatively slow day. I remember getting a text message, and it was from my buddy Andrew Sauter, who I talked about earlier, is just a great friend and mentor to me, who's a lieutenant at Springfield Township, one of our suburbs. He texted me, he's like, hey, man, are you working? Are you listening to this fire? It sounds bad. I didn't know we even had a fire going on, so I run out. I grab a portable radio and I turn it on. 
to the uh, fireground channel and about five seconds after I get the radio on, I hear what I thought was a mayday, but it was hard to distinguish. I kind of looked at the radio and then the mayday tones go off. The chief calls for the mayday. And so I run back into the dorm. The officer's room was right off the dorm and said, hey, guys, they just called the mayday at this fire. We got to go. So we all ran out to the rig, threw our gear on, jump in the rig, and right then the tones go off. So we figured, all right, perfect. They're calling for us. They're dropping the second alarm for the mayday. We're going over to Magnolia Street. And instead of hearing fire tones, they give us EMS tones and we get sent on a person shot. And so obviously none of our minds are in the right spot. We don't know who called the mayday. We don't know what's going on. We just know, listen to it. It sounds bad. There's a lot of fire. They can't find a couple guys. So we show up to this shooting and it's a couple of weird runs that I'll always remember just because our minds weren't hundred percent there. We pull up to the shooting and we have a bunch of these bus benches where the realtor puts their face on and it says, hey, call Dan at 419, whatever, whatever, and I'll sell your house. I always remember this guy was sitting on this bus bench and he had his arm up over top of the back like he had his arm around this realtor's face. And I get out of the rig and I'm like, hey, are you our patient? And he's like, yeah, man, I got shot in the knee. And I looked down at his knee. And I mean, it's just obliterated. He'd caught around right in the knee and it just kind of exploded his knee. But this guy was calm as could be, and he had managed to take his belt off and put it around his leg as a tourniquet. And I just remember asking the guy, like, is this your first time being shot? And he goes, no, man. He goes, this is no big deal. And I was just kind of dumbfounded. I didn't even know what to think because, again, obviously, our minds weren't here. We wanted to turn this run over as quick as possible and go to the fire because at this point, we still didn't know if they had found anybody. We take that run. We start towards the fire and they divert us to station seven to fill in there. And then we take a run from there. Another goofy run that I'll always remember. It came in as this EMS run for like an unconscious two-year-old or something. And we get out of the rig and there's no unconscious two-year-old. This lady just called 911 because her boyfriend or whoever is gorked out on K2 and he's sitting on the roof. And so we're just yelling at this guy like, bro, what are you doing? Get off the roof. And he's like, oh, okay. It was just one of those runs that it was totally inconsequential, but it was just weird given the whole context of the day. At that point, they found Jamie and Steve probably while we were on that run, if not a little before. And we're like, we can't go back to the engine house. Let's go to the hospital. There's a bunch of guys there, but let's go to the hospital, see if there's anything we can do, see what's happening. Because at this point, we didn't know anything. We really hadn't even heard any rumors because we had just pretty much run to the rig, threw our phones in the rig, and nobody had really even checked them yet. And so we get to the hospital and walk in, and, I mean, there's a bunch of off-duty guys there. There's a bunch of chiefs, the mayors there. And pretty soon everybody got word that both Jamie and Steve had died, that they weren't going to officially announce it to the media until they could get a hold of their families. So don't post it on social media or anything. So we stayed at the hospital until the families had been brought in from various points across the state. I think one of the families may have ended up in the state patrol's helicopter. Other family members were getting brought lights and sirens by police officers into towns so they didn't have to drive themselves. And for whatever reason, we were one of the crews that got picked to uh, escort both Jamie and Steve out of the uh, hospital, load them up into the coroner's vans. And then engine 16, we led the procession from St. Vincent's Hospital, which is just north of downtown, all the way to the coroner's office, which is kind of in South Toledo. So it was a pretty decent drive. At this point, they had just announced to the media and everybody else that we'd lost two guys. And we had police officers blocking 
every intersection that we came across, which was no small feat. And even in the freezing cold, I mean, it was brutally cold. I, I don't even remember how cold it was, but it was closer to zero than it was to 32. And there was a couple hundred people easily that just civilians that had walked out to just watch the procession go by and, and kind of pay their respects. And at that point, after taking Jamie and Steve to the coroner's office, and we folded the flags off their bodies, gave them to the chief so he could give them to their families. Then we went back to the firehouse and it was maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night and nobody went to bed. I think everybody just sat in their bunker pants around the kitchen table or on the apparatus floor. I think we all just sat there for the next seven or eight hours, just kind of in our own thoughts. Every once in a while, maybe saying something or getting up to get a drink of coffee or take a leak. But uh, somehow we didn't make a single run the rest of the night, which was almost unheard of. I mean, engine 16 is one of our busiest rigs probably could have used a couple runs. We had a big group text, especially with a lot of us younger guys that were on the job at the time. So in the morning, guys pretty much agreed, hey, go home, see your family, give them a hug and a kiss, do what you got to do. But we're all going out for breakfast and beers. And pretty much that whole next two days uh, that we had off were spent just with other guys from the job, just talking and kind of being around other guys that were going through the same thing. Seeing guys that you kind of looked up to as giants on a job that were some of the gruffest, meanest, funniest, just seasoned, hard-nosed guys that you've ever seen that were tearing up and having a hard time with it. That was tough just to see the effect that it had on some of those guys that were there. Some of the guys that actually pulled Jamie and Steve out and helped with their care on the way to the hospital. But even in the long term, after the funerals and after the memorials, one thing that definitely kind of made it harder on our job and on the guys in our department was the fact that it was an arson fire. And so it wasn't like after the funerals, you could have like a normal grieving period and kind of deal with it. It was prolonged. I mean, it was a couple of years by the time that the trial happened and the trial reopened a lot of wounds because guys had to testify on what they saw and what they did and injuries that they saw. So it was tough. And obviously defense lawyers are trying to tear apart what the fire department did. The trial actually ended up as a mistrial. One of the witnesses had misspoke about a lie detector test, one of the detectives. So that caused quite a commotion. Again, reopened those wounds for our guys. He ended up taking a plea deal, and, and that kind of ended that pain and suffering of the trial. But it's definitely had a long-term effect on us even now. It'll be six years, which is absolutely insane to say. I think there's a lot of people that might be more apprehensive about going to fires than they were then, just because some of those people were in the exact same conditions and just happened to make it out alive. We've definitely learned a lot from that fire. We've, we've changed a lot of the way that we do things, and it's improved our training. It's a tragedy that you have to suffer such a loss to sometimes spur some changes. But we've had a lot of people that reached out for help afterwards, and we had always had a pretty decent employee assistance program. Our EAP coordinator, at least as long as I've been on the job, was always a detailed position. So it was a firefighter who had voluntarily applied for the position and was selected and then sent to training. And that was their full-time job. They're a firefighter, but they were the EAP coordinator. So we'd always done that. But since Magnolia Street, our department's really gone into a lot of the peer support and kind of reaching outside of our own department as well kind of how can we help some of the suburban departments and really make people realize like, look, this isn't a you versus me thing. It's we're all in this together. So, I mean, if there's one 
definite positive to come out of this that's not operational. It's definitely the importance and the dedication that our department has put into the peer support aspect of things has, has definitely been big. It's amazing to hear how your department reacted to it, how everybody bonded together, how senior people, whether they intended to or not, led the way in showing that you can be affected by it, that it's the healthy thing to do, that it's the human thing to do, that it's the right thing to do. And the EAP and the peer support ended up coming out of it as well. That's all just great stuff to hear. And one more thing that I think a lot of times gets overlooked, I appreciated it at the time, but I didn't really understand how rare it was until talking to some friends who I had met later on that had come into town for our funerals. So in Toledo, what we do for a firefighter funeral is in addition to like a traditional church service and that whole thing, we have what we call a last alarm service. And so if you're a retired guy and you die at 90 years old, if you want a last alarm service, the fire department will give you one. They go to the funeral home, the honor guard will come out and they'll ring the bell three times and they'll read your assignments on the fire department. It's a cool thing that a lot of the families appreciate, but it really came out of line of duty deaths is where that it first started. So for Jamie and Steve, the last alarm was at the convention center downtown. So in addition to the department having to help plan two funerals and the viewings and coordinating with the family's wishes and everything else, we also had to plan this massive last alarm ceremony. So in ways that I didn't realize at the time, but we found you kind of appreciate later, there was so much work to be done. And it was all around guys that were going through the same stuff. So engine three and engine 13, for example, they did not switch back into their normal rigs after the fire. They got put into backup rigs and the reserve pieces. Somebody had to pick up the shoes off the apparatus floor, right? And they had to do something with the car and the lockers and what if beds are made, that kind of thing, stuff that you don't think about. And so when they were setting up for the last alarm, there's thousands of firefighters from across the world. I talked to a guy at the bar afterwards who was from Australia. I mean, I know we had guys from Canada. I know Toronto sent a ton of guys. New York City sent us a ton of guys. Worcester, Massachusetts had sent us guys. And so now, sadly, I've had to go to Worcester twice in the past, what, year, year and a half for two funerals. And guys are, oh man, Toledo, you guys are here. And I said, I explicitly remember talking to Worcester guys in Toledo when you guys came out for us. And we're not going to forget that. So since our line of duty deaths, our department has also really pushed us going out for line of duty death services all across the country whenever we can. They really support us in conjunction with the union. But at this last alarm, in addition to setting up all the chairs, which the convention center handled, two things that needed to be done were getting the rigs over to the convention center and then detailing them, washing them and waxing them and polishing them up. And I don't think it's ever taken 15 people per engine four hours to completely detail one. But I think these engines looked nicer during the last alarm than they probably did when they came off the factory floor. And it was one of those things where at the time you were just working really hard. You were kind of into it, polishing every little nook and cranny on the rig, even stuff that nobody would ever see. And then it kind of hits you later. Like, you know what? There was more to that than you realized at the time. I'm glad that we had that because it was more stuff for people to do, a way for more people to get involved as opposed to just sitting at home or sitting in a bar, giving people some purpose. But also, our police department. So Toledo Police and Toledo Fire Department, we get along 
spectacularly. I know a lot of cities our size or bigger don't necessarily have the greatest relationships always with their police departments. So yeah, when it comes to hockey, which by the way, I think we've won like now three times in a row, but when it comes to sports like hockey or softball or bowling or basketball, I mean, you name it, we have sports teams for it. And yeah, things get feisty. There might be some fisticuffs on the ice, but when the rubber meets the road, we can't say enough about the support that they gave us at the bars downtown after the last alarm. Again, I mean, there's thousands of firefighters. They had police cars lined up outside of every bar downtown and officers would walk through the bar. And this is before Uber and Lyft was really a big thing. And They said, hey, look, we don't care where you're going if you're because we're right on the border with Michigan. So they're like, look, you could even be going into Michigan. It doesn't matter. No firefighter is getting a DUI tonight. No firefighters getting in a crash and getting hurt or killed tonight. No matter where you're going, let us know and we're going to take you there. And it was all off-duty guys that put on a uniform, went downtown, got an extra car and had basically volunteered for this detail to help us out. Like I said, we've always had a pretty good relationship with them, but I think that has gone a long way to realizing that, not to be corny, but kind of the same team. And uh, even though we like to argue and fight over certain things, especially sports, I think that was a huge help to guys too. I think a lot of guys that struck them is, oh man, these guys do care. And it was funny later on, met a guy at FDIC a couple of years later who was telling me a story. He goes, man, I was in for your funerals, which he's like, I'm sorry for your loss, but that was the craziest thing I've ever seen. He goes, I've been to multiple funerals across the country. That's the only place where I went for a beer run in the back of a paddy wagon. And then they took us back to our hotel. I've never seen that in my life. And I was like, those guys were great. I couldn't say enough about them. Just like your brother, right? Growing up, you guys were on each other like crazy. But underlying all that, there's family. Oh, absolutely. I think that's any good firehouse, too. I mean, we're B-shift and we're the captain's shift at our station, which means that most things get left for us because the captain's ultimately responsible. There's one captain per engine house. So if anything gets done or doesn't get done, it falls on him. So sometimes other shifts take liberties in that. And they're like, oh, yeah, we didn't uh, do the brass last day. Uh yeah, we just didn't want to do it, so you're going to have to do it today. So that's one more chore we have to do. But just like having a brother, I can talk crap about the other two shifts at my station, but you better not talk crap about the other two <laughs> shifts at my right. station. Just like I can talk shit about my brother, but you can't. You're exactly right. That bond is huge. Let's finish off with a few standard questions. I really appreciate you talking to me about all that. Shared dorms or separate rooms? I'm a huge fan of a shared dorm or bunk room. So at sevens, Everybody but the officers and the night watchmen sleep in the dorm. So our night watchman actually sleeps in the kitchen. We don't have enough room in our little watch desk area to have a bed. So you roll in a little mattress and sleep on the floor in the kitchen. If the phone rings, you answer it. If the doorbell rings, you, no joke, pick up a bat that's near the door and you hit the gong until somebody else slides the pole because you don't answer the door after dark by yourself because uh, interesting things have been known to happen. But minus that, everybody else sleeps in the dorm, which is great. It's like being a fifth or sixth grader having a sleepover. Everybody's joking and laughing and farting and throwing stuff at each other. It's short sheet in the bed or putting pop cans underneath the bed frame, right? So when somebody gets back from a run and gets in bed, they lay down on it and the pop cans collapse and everybody's rolling. I think for crew integrity, crew continuity, and just togetherness, I think a dorm is far better than the individual rooms because everywhere I've ever worked that's had those, guys just kind of tend to go in there and hide, play on their computer, take a nap just be alone regardless of what policies may be in place to hopefully prevent that. Eat together or every firefighter for themselves? I think you got to eat together. So in Toledo, our daily meal allowance that we spend is called the clutch. 
So for most places, clutch is 10 bucks a day, and that's going to pay for your lunch and dinner. We'll do breakfast. You can pretty much judge how good a crew or how good an engine house is in Toledo by whether or not they cook breakfast every day. Because everybody does lunch and dinner, but crews that cook breakfast every day seem to be just squared away, super tight crews. I know correlation isn't necessarily always causation, but it sure seems like there's some correlation there that maybe needs to be investigated further. Our breakfast, though, will get paid for out of house funds. So our house fund is 12 bucks a pay, and that covers eggs, potatoes, milk, condiments, internet, cable, green chairs, or, or lazy boys, sorry. That's like a Toledo term. We have a couple Toledo terms that are just part of our culture, and you'll never hear a chair referred to as a lazy boy. It's always referred to as a green chair because way back when, the wooden chairs often were painted green. And then back in like the 60s with like the tubular steel frames and like space age looking stuff, the chairs were finished in a green upholstery. And even now our lazy boys in the firehouse are green. They're hideous, but they're green and we pay for them. The city doesn't buy them, but it's just one of those traditions. Like, all right, it's a green chair, mattresses, televisions, all that stuff we pay for out of that $12 a pay. But if people don't pay in for meals and do meals on their own, they're typically referred to as a clutch buster. And clutch busters generally aren't very well liked. I guess sometimes there's guys that are vegan or are kind of doing their own thing or they're on a, a meal plan or a weight loss thing. But anytime I've worked with guys like that, most of the time they'll at least attempt to chip in. We might be like, ah, no, man, that's cool. You don't have to. And, and they'll be like, no, you know what? I'm going to put $5 in or, or I'm still putting $10 in or I'm buying you steaks. Next weekend we work, on, I'm going to bring in steaks. Don't worry about it. But there's some people that unapologetically just are like, no, we should all eat by ourselves, which I think is horrible, especially because like I was saying earlier, like we hang out in the kitchen all day long, which is awesome because now if you're the cook, you had all kinds of people to help you cut stuff up or watch the stuff cooking, watch the oven while you're uh, out on a run or, or whatever else. But it also means that you're not only getting judged during the meal and how it tastes, but also during the preparation of a meal, which is just as exciting sometimes. It's crazy, but again, I think there's just something to be said about crews that eat together. It's huge. It shouldn't even be an option. You should have to eat together, even if you're not in on the same meal. So if you're somebody that does have your own special diet or whatever else, my captain, for example, he doesn't eat what we eat, but he'll pay in and he'll bring in steaks or whatever from time to time for us to eat, but he always eats at the same time with us. So whether he's doing his fish or he's just doing a salad or whatever, when we call dinner, that's when he eats. He doesn't eat before us. He eats with the crew, which I think is short of being in on the meal is, is the only way to do it. Smooth bore or fog nozzle, if we even can talk engine stuff. That, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When I was out at the last couple of academies and I was um, one of the lead instructors for extinguishment for fire attack and as crews would rotate through to kind of help us for the day or see guys out and they're like, Hey, what are you teaching out there? Why is a squatty, which is what we call rescue guys. Why is a squatty teaching fire attack? Like you never have a line in your hand. And I just half jokingly tell them, I'm like, cause if these guys aren't good at fire attack, I'm going to be in a bad way really quick. So <laughs> I need these people to be really good at engine work. Right. <laughs> I have a vested interest in these people being good. So you can do what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Them being good at what they do allows me to do what I do. And the funny thing is you'll never see Jake Hoffman teaching an engine company class anywhere. Like that is not my forte. I know to stay in my lane when it comes to that. But the way that we do things on Toledo, the way that we pull our hose lines, the way we pack our hose lines, I can teach that stuff because that's pretty simple. And my officers have always been kind of of the impression that 
just like in the Marine Corps, every Marine's a rifleman. They're like, every fireman is a nozzleman. So you need to know it doesn't matter if you ride the rescue. You need to be proficient at pulling hose lines. So just about every single day, everybody's pulling a line at least one time. So we still practice that stuff. But long, convoluted way to get back to the question. I love when people ask me this question, especially if I teach in like some smaller departments, because I think they think I'm going to convince their chief to go to smoothbore nozzles because I work for a bigger city. My thing is, I really don't care what it is. I mean, if I could get a super soaker that puts out 150 gallons per minute, I'll take that in. I have no problem. Put out a fair number of fires with some sink sprayers, igloo coolers, pots of water I filled up in the sink. I mean, if I can get water out of it, I'll give it a shot. You give me water balloons, I'll throw them at the fire until it either doesn't work or the fire goes out. The only time I really care is in a high rise. And then it's a no brainer for the food board, but I've just never really gotten bent out of shape that, oh, yeah, one's better than the other. I'm like, whatever, man, just give it to me and, and we'll make it work. So you mentioned high rises. I won't stick with the engine stuff for long, but uh, <laughs> the two and a half inch line interior or exterior. Mm-hmm. So we just finally, a couple of years ago, changed all of our high rise hose over to two and a half. For way too long, we were running inch and three quarter, but a major complication there was just cost. Kind of like I said, we're your stereotypical Rust Belt city and don't really have a lot of uh, extra funding to go around. So. When it came to just something as simple as buying an extra two and a half inch hose for hose packs, it was just a non-starter. There was no way. So historically, as an organization, I would say the two and a half is too often thought of as just an exterior line. I think that's slowly starting to change, especially with starting to implement it as a high-rise line, doing some training with it. I can say that my crew and a lot of the crews, especially as they get, like I said, younger guys and and guys that are seeing things differently than just the way that we do things um, aren't necessarily shying away from pulling that as an interior line. So I don't think I can commit to either. I'd say me personally, I have no problem with it as an interior line. As an organization, I'd say a lot of people still see that as an exterior line. So definitely some work needed there. But I think one thing that works well for us, and not that it works well for everybody or, or not that it's the right thing to do, but we pretty much just bum rush building fires. I mean, we just throw a bunch of people inside with a bunch of lines and it seems to work well until it doesn't. And that's the times when the two and a half really shines when we've pulled it on an auto body shop and and the first two engines pulls an inch and three quarter line. And you're like, come on, it's a commercial building fire. Why are you pulling an inch and three quarter line? Oh yeah, we're having a hard time hitting it. We're having a hard time getting it. And all of a sudden somebody pulls an appropriately sized line and, and pretty soon the fire goes out. So I would say we are on the right track towards more proficiency in the use of the two and a half as an interior line, but not where we should be. Lastly, I want you to tell me about Grandma Bakes Valentine Cookies well. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, when you had asked me about acronyms, I'm not a huge proponent of acronyms. Like, I don't really remember a whole lot of them, but sometimes for things that you got to memorize, it definitely pays off. And one of those things that as you go on rotations throughout the city, one of the first things they want you to start studying is that district that you're assigned to. So as you rotate around the city, hopefully by the end of your probationary period, you have at least three districts fairly well memorized. So as you uh, continue on in your career and maybe you get stuck on an ambulance for a while, or maybe you're doing whatever else, you kind of know the city a little bit better than you may have before. And so mnemonics or acronyms are how a bunch of the old guys taught us how to memorize streets. And so when I was at Engine 13, the one guy, Randy Coy, he's like, yeah, all you got to remember once you go past Tony Paco's is Grandma Bakes Valentine Cookies Well. And that stands for Genesee Bakewell Valentine Caledonia Woodford. 
And it's amazing how something that stupid, <laughs> every time we go to a fire over there, I know where it is, but I hear 2200 block of Woodford, Jesse Bakewell, Valentine County and Woodford, Grandma Bakes Valentine Cookies Well. And there's other acronyms or mnemonics like that that aren't very politically correct, but are also <laughs> very helpful for remembering other streets in the city. And every time we catch a run over in one of those areas, I just find myself involuntarily just reciting it in my head. So if people want to get a hold of you, reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? I mean, you can look me up on Facebook, Jay Kaufman. Twitter's probably pretty easy, too. When I did the Journeyman Fire podcast, I think Kyle Samson called me Twitter famous with a goofy handle or something along those lines. But when I first made a Twitter, it was actually for a college class. And I was like, I'm never going to use this Twitter. So I had a nickname for a little while that was Leroy. So uh, my Twitter handle, if you're looking for that, is at TFD underscore Leroy, L-E-E-R-O-Y. Yeah, now I'm kind of stuck with that, even though it's not what I would necessarily prefer. You could also uh, shoot me an email, I suppose, if somebody wants to kind of go old school. And my email is backsteprescue, pretty easy to remember, at gmail.com. Nice. Well, man, I really appreciate you talking to me. This was great. No problem. Thanks for having me. Like I said, I was shocked and honored that uh, you reached out. And hopefully I didn't blab too much. I felt like I was talking nonstop. And well, it's your episode. You're supposed to be pretty quiet if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's true, I guess. All right, man. I'm going to let you get to the rest of your night, and we'll, we'll connect soon. Cool. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you.